A good morning. It's always good to be together. Uh, before uh, we experience a sermon together, I want to take just a couple of minutes uh, to talk a little bit about the generosity of this church, especially uh, the generosity that took place in 2019. Uh, together as a church, we gave more than $2 million last year, almost $2.1 million. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that is a huge number when you see it on a screen, and it, it represents decisions that every family in this church family make about how we want to partner, how we want to use the wealth that God has given us uh, to bless other people. And in fact, out of that number, uh, 421000 of that is harvest. Uh, nearly $15,000 of that is our children's offering, which always goes to groups that are outside of this direct uh, family at Southern Hills. Uh, and, and that's 20% of what we gave immediately goes outside of these walls to other people who are doing God's work throughout the world. Uh, and that, that number, 20%, is far greater than any other church I've ever worked at in terms of deciding ahead of time we want to be that kind of blessing to other people outside of our community. And so I want to praise this, this church for doing that. I, I want you to know uh, that it's not just some of us noticing, but God sees this sacrifice. God sees reflections of his son in this kind of sacrifice. Now, the, the remaining amount there is, is something that goes to what, what we call the regular offering, right? It goes to our weekly budget. And I want to show you last year kind of what that looked like. So uh, the way you break that down in 52 weeks is, is $33,000 a week that, that we need to raise in order to do the ministry here that we feel like God is calling us to do. And I know sometimes when we talk about regular weekly offerings, we immediately just kind of think, well, that's the bills. It keeps the lights on. It kind of just goes here and it stays here. But that's not true at Southern Hills. A large percentage of what you give every week goes outside of the walls in this community. Uh, and so here's, here's how we gave last year. And you'll see that a lot of us, when it comes to weekly giving, we tend to give once a month. And so those are where the spikes happen, uh, usually around the first of the month. Uh, and you'll see that there are some weeks where we're almost all, close to $60,000, but there's other weeks where we, we struggle to meet that goal. And so if you kind of average that out where you can see the trend, it looks more like this, right? So you can see that we set our goal at 33000 a week last year, and we really never reached it. We got really close. Uh, we, we had some really close months there in March and April and May. When you get to June, July, and August, as you would expect with some of the travel, uh, we dipped down. We kind of pulled back up into the, the fall, and then we, we around Thanksgiving and, and some travel time there, we dipped back down. This, this is the normal kind of trend that we see, the up and down in the year. Uh, but because of this, because we didn't quite reach this in 2019 on our, our regular weekly offering, we're keeping our budget flat this year. Right? So the goal is still going to be 33000 a week. But in order for us to reach it, we're, we're going to have to give more as a church family. And looking at the numbers of, of church membership households, what that means is in order for us to get there, we need every household, every family in this church to consider giving five more dollars a week. Now, for some of us, that may be impossible. For others of us, that may be really simple. Uh, and one of the things I, I want to show you is we have 460 households that 
that are currently identifying themselves as members of this church family. Of those 460, 260 are giving currently to our weekly offering. Now, you, you may be giving to other things, to, to missions. You may be giving to other worthy causes that you care about. But what that means is that we have 200 families, households, that consider themselves members here who aren't currently giving to our weekly offering. And I really want to encourage everybody to, to think about the math of $5 a week only works if we all are able to give. Now, if you can't, I'm not in any way trying to make you feel pressured about that. But if you can, in this coming week, I want you to talk to the members in your family and decide whether or not you can find a way to give $5 more this, this year, a week, than you did last year. And I know we asked for an increase last year. And I know at times we look around and we think, okay, is everything, is the cost always going up? And the answer is, yeah, the cost is always going up. We're being really careful. We're trying to be conservative with what we're doing with the money you give us. I can promise you we're watching those dollars and cents very, very closely. But we want to be able to do more here. We want to be able to do more for our neighbors. We want to be able to, to grow our footprint as a church, not just through mission work throughout the world. While that is crucial and important, we want to do God's work in our own community. And we're doing that, but we want to do more of that. And just like the cost of living goes up for your own family, inflation and, and all the other things, the cost of living for a church goes up. So if it's been years since you've looked at that number you give and you kind of, it's, been, it's been flat, you need to know um, that, that, that we, we want you to consider giving more this year for the sake of the gospel. Again, I think so often we think it just goes to bless ourselves when we give to the regular weekly offering. That is, that is just part of the story, paying the bills and keeping the lights on. There's so many other ministries. There's so many other things we're able to do with that money. So please, uh, consider increasing your gift to our weekly offering this year. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for all the ways you do bless us, all the ways that you, you guide us, the ways that you work through the Holy Spirit in our, our lives, and we want to be like you. And I thank you for the, the generous spirit that already exists in this church family because I believe that it comes directly from your heart and I just pray that you would continue to help us experience the joy that comes from giving the way that you ask us to give, from partnering with you in ways that maybe we don't even have a full grasp on all the ways you can multiply what we give to you. We, we pray that you would work in our lives work through our resources, bless people. God, we want to be that kind of church. We want to be those kinds of families. And so we pray that you would help us do that. And as we open your word this morning and we listen to the words of your son, we pray that you would change us and transform us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in January, uh, we, for a handful of weeks, we really wrestled with this foundational question of who is Jesus? And we tried our best to see clearly just how challenging and unsettling, revolutionary, world-changing Jesus really is. And, and his mission, he, he doesn't want to leave anybody out. He wants to be able to reach every single person on the, place, uh, on the, the face of the planet. He wants to be able to, to reach 
those who everybody else has decided are unreachable. He wants to, to see the people that are invisible to everybody else, and he wants his followers to do the same. And so we talked about not only who Jesus is, but who he wants us to be as his disciples, that he invites us into that world-changing mission, right? That, that revolution of love that he believes is the only thing that can save every single person on this planet. And this morning, we're starting a new study in the Gospel of Luke that we're calling, What Would Jesus Undo? And no, we're not going to have bracelets, so don't ask. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing, right? That, that Jesus, as much as we know when we read the Gospels, that Jesus is doing all kinds of amazing things to help change people's lives, and, and all of that is fueled by the amazing love of God, it's for that same reason, right? For that, that, that same love that causes Jesus not only to do amazing things, but to undo the dark, destructive forces that we have to face in this broken world, right? Because there are things in our world that unquestionably need to go away. There are things that happen that don't need to be happening. There are, there are forces that we all experience that need to be torn down and dismantled. They, they need to be toppled over and, and put away. They, they need to be something that if you can even imagine this, we get to a place where we forget. We forget how much it hurt. We forget how much damage was done. And all we focus on is on the healing and the grace and the future that God wants for every single person. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about four destructive forces that, that often we experience that are, are still in, in, in many ways at work within our world and in our lives. But we, we're going to see that in the face of Jesus, those things are undone. And that we want to be a part of what Jesus is, is doing and and also a part of what Jesus is undoing. That we want to stand for, for what Jesus stands for, and that means at some level that we're going to have to resist, we're going to have to stand against the things that hurt and harm our relationships with our neighbors, who Jesus says God has given us to love and care for. Back when my 11-year-old daughter Riley was three years old, she attended preschool, and they invited all the, the dads to this thing they called you know, Donuts with Dads. It's exactly what it sounds like. So we're, we're all sitting around in this gym, and we're, we're eating donuts with our toddlers, which, which is a really sticky experience. And, and we're all trying to just get through what, what are we supposed to be doing. And, you know, we're kind of clueless, but they, they get us from the tables, and then they take pictures. Miss Tracy, her teacher, took our picture together, and they gave us this little laminated tie that, that Riley had made for me. I still have it hanging up in my office right now. And, uh, and then there was this list that they had asked Riley questions um, about me. And, and this is what she wrote. So my daddy is taller than me, which is true. Uh, my daddy likes to eat steak and ice cream, which is kind of true. Uh, my daddy and I have fun when we play outside. My daddy's favorite store is the ice cream store. Now, I'm not a huge ice cream person, but Riley is. And she assumes that I love what she loves, which makes this last one my favorite answer. Can we pull up the, the close-up? I love my daddy because he doesn't like my cat. 
which is the shadow side of saying, okay, we might love the same things, right? Because this, this kind of reminds me of that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's that I, I found out that what holds us together is what we don't like, right? And, and the fact that you don't like this makes me like you more, and in Riley's case, maybe even love you, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, that's this old saying, right, that almost sounds like a riddle, especially the first time you hear it, but it makes as much sense now as it did when it was first stated, right? If I find out that you don't like the same person I don't like, I might just like you because we have something in common. We, we have a connection. We, we have labeled someone the same exact way, and we we probably don't like them for pretty much the same exact reasons. Maybe we should go to lunch and talk about it. Right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. We live in a world that's overflowing. It's filled to overflowing with labels. Right? We toss them around all the time. We don't even give much thought to it. And from our perspective, you know, there's, there's good people, there's bad people, there's conservatives, there's liberals, there's moderates, though they're harder and harder to find. You know, there, there's rockers and skaters and hippies and suits, there's slackers and workaholics, there's beach bums and mall rats, and as long as we've got Ricker, a deadhead in the room. There are boomers and millennials, they're upper, lower, and middle classes. There's even, you know, upper middle class people. There are city folks and country folks. There are southerners, Yankees, West Coasters. Later today, there's going to be a bunch of people pulling for the Chiefs, and then there's going to be people pulling for the right team. (laughs) The labels go on and on, okay? Different kinds of people tossed into different kind of categories. And it happens without us even noticing it because we do it so often. right? We're, we're shaped in this way. We're, we're used to looking at someone and trying to, to figure them out just by how they look or the clothes they wear, the music they like, or the neighborhood they call home. We're used to sizing people up and then putting them in some kind of category or label. Sometimes we do it in order to figure them out. Sometimes we do it in order to figure out how they're different from us. Sometimes we do it in order to figure out how we might be better than them. Sometimes we're trying to figure out what's wrong with them because we have this overwhelming sense that if we figure out what's wrong with them, then maybe we might be able to figure out how to fix them. Right? They become a project. Nobody likes to become your project. But it's tempting. When I was in second grade, my mother was called into a special teacher-parent conference. You know, unscheduled. And those aren't usually really good. My mom kept asking me, do you have any idea why your teacher wants to see me? I said, I have no idea. I am, I'm the best student in that class. <laughs> and she said, well, you've done something. So she gets there, and she starts talking to my, my second-grade teacher. The lady's name was, was Miss San Filippo. And as second-graders, we had all kinds of words we rhymed with Miss San Filippo that drove her crazy. And, and my mom said, what's going on with, with Jared? Why, why are we here? And she said, well, 
you know, your son is a rule follower. Yeah. He said, well, the thing with your son is he really needs everybody else to be a rule follower too. (laughs) And she said, well, what, what do you, she said, well, here's the thing. He's not a, he doesn't tattle on anybody. It's, it's more annoying than that. He pulls them aside in the middle of whatever they're doing. And he tells them very calmly and politely that though they're having fun doing whatever it is they're doing, that it's against the rules and they need to stop. And I don't know if you know this about your son, but he's the smallest kid in the class and I'm getting really nervous about his safety. <laughs> and she said, you know, I just... I like him, but he's driving me crazy, and I'm wondering if you could talk to him. What, what does your husband do again? And my mom said, well, he's a preacher. And she said, oh, that's it. <laughs> my mom said, what? And she said, well, isn't that, I mean, don't ministers go around making people feel bad about who they are? I mean, don't they point out all the things we should be doing differently? I mean, I guess that works for preachers, but you need to tell your son that's not a good way to make friends. Isn't that who preachers are? Right? And maybe we might say, some people might think, isn't that who Christians are? They're the folks who walk around telling people what they're doing wrong and what they need to do to, to follow the rules. It's not a good way to make friends. Well, Jesus knows this. This tendency, I think, in, in his people to care about pleasing God, to care about following the rules, but then to also have this anxiety about the fact that there's a lot of people out there in the world who aren't yet following the rules. And we can become overwhelmed with the sense that we need to walk through this world helping people realize what's really going on. And Jesus is concerned that if that's how we start to relate to people, if that's our starting place, we're not going to get very far. So he talks about this in in one of his famous sermons in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll start reading together in verse 37. He says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Students are not above their teacher, but all who are fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Now Jesus here makes it clear. That one of the dark destructive forces that he wants to undo in our lives is condemnation. Now it's one thing to know what condemnation feels like when you're the one receiving it, right? Nobody has to tell you what condemnation feels like when it's happening to you. It is devastating. It makes you feel hopeless. It makes you feel like you can't possibly be good enough or do good enough to please whoever it is that's condemning you. Nobody has to explain that. Here's where it gets trickier. 
when you're the one inflicting the condemnation on somebody else, it starts to get a little blurry, right? Because if you're doing that to somebody, and, and you're doing it especially as a person of faith, or if you're doing it with, with what you'd call good intentions, you start to get caught up, caught up in the fact that you can't really focus on what they're feeling. All you feel is, is that you've got to do whatever it takes. You've got to say whatever it takes to wake them up to all the ways that they've lost their way. And you'll do anything. Right, and you convince yourself at times it's because they matter so much to you. And yet, Jesus says, when we, when we start to talk like that to one another, when we, when we say dark and threatening things to one another, to wake them up, to get their attention, Jesus says, it doesn't work because you drive people away. They can't listen because it hurts. They can't receive it because it's so difficult for them to understand where they're supposed to go from this moment where you are dismantling them because you disagree with them. Condemnation doesn't always feel like the wrong thing to do. There are moments when we have to admit that condemnation actually feels kind of like the right thing. We live in a world filled with labels, right? We don't just understand the concept of passing judgment. We do it all the time. I wish we, we didn't have to face this reality about ourselves, but Jesus is making us face it this morning. I mean, we tend to call it something less judgmental, right? We, we call it things like, you know, critical thinking or analyzing or evaluating or categorizing. But whatever we want to call it, we tend to look at one another and make judgment calls, not just about what somebody's doing, but about what they're doing and how it defines who they are in the fullness of their identity. So when Jesus says as directly as he can, do not judge, do not condemn, he immediately has my attention, and then right after he gets my attention, I'm immediately feeling the surge of guilt course through me because I know he's right. He's right about us, and more specifically, he's right about me. And I know I need to cut it out. I know I need to stop deciding that I'm the world's inspector general of all the things that everybody's doing or failing to do. I know that I have appointed myself to walk around and notice where your shortcomings are and then point them out to you in friendly conversation that I think's friendly and you probably think is unbearable. I know I need to stop. But there is this overly concerned, well-intentioned, incredibly annoying second grader that's still with me. And I am really worried that the real reason you're all making mistakes is I haven't let you know that you're making them. And that if I could just have a word, that you'd stop. I'm not judging you to punish you. I'm judging you to improve you. Right? I'm, I'm judging you to, to make things better. I'm, I'm not... I'm not wanting to condemn you to hurt you. I, I'm condemning you to get your attention. It's for your own good, or at least that's what I keep telling myself. It's not a good way to make friends. We've all, at one time or another, we slip into this, 
sense, this overbearing sense of responsibility for other people. And look, I understand that we feel really responsible as parents for our children. I get that. But we don't just have that sense of overbearing responsibility when it comes to people that we're raising. Right? Brothers and sisters and families can get to the place where they think that what the other person does reflects on the identity of the family. So if you make a mistake, you make all of us look like mistakes. Right? We, we have this sense even as friends. Right, You can be close to somebody, and then if you're close to them, you start to have this sense of what they should be doing with their life. And you start to feel like, well, maybe you need to be the one who brings up the changes they need to make. And maybe you need to keep bringing it up until they finally do what you think they need to do. It's not just friendship. Sometimes it's coworkers where we, we want to make sure that we're all kind of headed at the same set of goals. And we're, we're pursuing it with the same level of intensity. And then there's, there's people of faith like us who truly believe that we have discovered the single best way to live this life. And we want to tell everybody else that they should be living this way too. In fact, if you give us the power and the leverage, we'll force people to try to live like they believe the same things we believe in order that, they, that in living that way somehow, they'll start to believe it too. And it's not because we're trying to do anything bad to them. It's because we think we know better than they do what they should be doing with their life. And of all the reasons you could judge somebody, this has to be the most noble. Right? Hope that they really can be a better person. A dream of an incredible future that you believe they could have. Hope that they really can change. The thing is, if we're not really, really careful, hope in someone else's future can become bitter disappointment in their present. And while most of our judging goes on in the privacy of our own hearts, the secret of what we really think about someone else always eventually gets out. Right? We don't have to tell them directly through our actions, through the way we treat them, through the fact that we, we're so impatient with them. They know it. They know that we're living in judgment of them. Concern, brothers and sisters, it can shift into condemnation without us knowing what's really happening. And suddenly we find that we're really angry with somebody because we can see so clearly the distance between who they are right now and who we believe they should be in Christ. We're angry at them for that distance. And they can feel it. They know it. And it makes relationships so much more difficult than they have to be. And, and relationships are challenging in the best of times. But when we start to compare somebody the way they really are to this imaginary future version of who we want them to be, we live in constant bitter disappointment. And just in the same way that nobody wants to be your project, nobody wants to live as a disappointment to you. And they'll walk away. Every single time, they'll walk away. And Jesus knows this. And he says, look, we can't fix someone by judging them and telling them they're broken. In other words, we can't condemn someone into changing. Oh, we try. I guess I'll say I try. And it may work for a little while, but it never works long enough. Because when we are harsh in our judgment of other people and we tell them about how we feel and our struggle to accept them the way they are, they'll change their behavior on the surface, 
long enough to get us to stop condemning them. But when you change your behavior on the surface, that's not soul-deep transformation, and it means that it's short-lived. And sure, they may be able to stop doing whatever offensive behavior it is that you're critiquing, but eventually it's all going to come back because it's not really about their surface-level behaviors. It's about their heart. It's about who they really are. Jesus is trying to get us to, to understand that you can't change someone from the outside in nearly as well as you can change someone from the inside out. So we say to Jesus, well, how do you do that? And he says, well, if you want to get to their heart, you start with their heart. You start in the place where they really live and breathe and have a sense of who they are. And here's what you do in the deepest parts of who they are. Here's what you do. You cut them some slack. You forgive them. You give them a second chance. You help them understand. However you have to help them understand, you help them understand that you're going to love them, that it's a constant, that it's unconditional. You're going to love them whether or not they're able to make all the changes you think they should be able to make. And then maybe, when you've convinced them that you love them no matter what, maybe they'll have the courage to start to change. But the second grade version of me wants to argue back with Jesus and say, that all sounds nice and warm and fuzzy, but let's get real here, Jesus. There's people whose lives are falling apart because of bad choices they're making. And if you just give me 10 minutes with them, I promise I could get through to them. They really do need to change. They just need somebody that's brave enough to tell them. And Jesus says, okay, fine, second grade, Jared, let's have the conversation. If your question is, how are all these imperfect people in your life, how are they going to realize, how are they going to change, that's the question. Nate, pull up that question on the screen. Okay, if that's the question, Jesus has two responses. You can go back in Luke in, in chapter 6 and see his two responses and what we read. But here's basically what he says. The first thing is, okay, You'd be better off, if you're going to do this, take the approach of a teacher and not a judge. And, and here's what I, want to, I really want us to explore, is that as a teacher, your most effective visual aid is your life. That's always true. But it is absolutely true when it comes to teachers of faith, that the absolutely most effective visual aid we have is our life. And this guided people in my life, all the folks around me that I wish they'd make other decisions or do something else, the only chance they really have of seeing that truth is if they see it in me, right? If they see in my life a difference. And here's the thing. If my life isn't different enough for them to see it, that's not their failure. It's mine. My life should be filled with joy and hope and goodness and grace and mercy. And I shouldn't have to tell anybody any of that because they should experience that when they're around me. You can't force people to change. That's not how it works. But you can always inspire people to change in the best way. The most effective way for us to inspire people to change is through our actions. Not through what we say we intend to do, but, but through what we actually do with our lives. Don't, don't you know that in your own experience? When you've really made positive changes in your life, my guess is you saw somebody else living that way and you thought, I, I want to experience that too. And you start making changes in your life to pursue that. 
Jesus says when we make the mistake of thinking that the role we have is the role of judge for other people, we need to reclaim the position of being a life teacher. I most effectively teach other people what's possible, not through words of critique or criticism, but through a life well lived. I need that on a, on a mirror. Right? That I, I don't teach people through words of critique and criticism nearly as much as I teach them through a life well lived. Okay, the second answer Jesus gives to my second grade question about how are all the imperfect people around me going to know they're imperfect unless I tell them. He says, look, you do yourself and, and everyone around you a whole lot more good if you'd focus on working hard with your life instead of trying to work on their lives. In case we still can't really see this, Jesus uses this ridiculous image. And because we've heard it before, maybe, or because it's in the Bible, we don't laugh at it. Because we don't think we're supposed to laugh at things that are in the Bible. But Jesus is, is trying to be humorous here. And the exaggerated image of you literally trying to help somebody get a little bit of, you know, speck of sawdust out of their eye while you've got a telephone pole coming out of your face. You know, how, how would that work? It wouldn't work. And what Jesus is trying to get us to see is, look, you think you have 20-20 vision, but you're half blind. You just don't know you're half blind. You know, if you've been half blinded your whole life, you think that's perfect vision. But Jesus is saying, no, there's this, all this stuff you don't see. And your struggles and your shortcomings, they cause you to be half blinded. So before you rush off to fix somebody else's shortcomings or point out their struggles, maybe you should start with you. And frankly, I think Jesus would say to us, if you're starting out focusing on yourself, working on your life, trying to partner with him and becoming more and more like him every day, that is all you have time to do. You have not yet reached the place where you now have time to fix everybody else's life according to your standards. Stick with you. Us. You and I. Working hard to be better people, it's the only thing that can truly inspire others to work hard to be better people. I know this world is filled with folks who we see they need to make changes. Jesus never denies that people need to be transformed. It's, it's that he, he wants us to understand that we're not in the position to tell everybody how to live their lives. We're in the position to show people how to live their lives. And, and that's what I want you to, to wrestle with this week, right? We should be showing people a better way of life instead of lecturing them about it, right? Don't be annoying second grade Jared. Don't do that. I know we mean well, but it doesn't work. And it's not a good way to make friends, We've got to stop making people feel worse about who they already are and then the mistakes they're making. We need to stop harshly pointing out what other people are doing that we disagree with. We need to stop being a judge. We need to learn, again, how to be a teacher. And when we are teachers, we need to teach with who we are instead of just what we think. We need to teach with our hearts more than our minds. We need to teach the way Jesus taught, full of grace and truth. Grace always comes first. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about someone in it 
that frustrates you because they're failing to live up to the potential that you have in mind for them. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop being disappointed in them. Stop being disappointed in them and start hoping for them. And there's a difference. Don't pray disappointed prayers about them. I used to do that. There were years my sisters were making bad choices, and when I would pray to God, I made sure he knew about it. You know, be with my sisters. They're idiots. They need your help. I can't help them. I'm done trying. They won't listen to me. I don't know why. Change them, God. Amen. You know, you pray like that every day for somebody. When you see them, you're grumpy. But at some point, my dad pointed that out to me. And so he said, would you just stop praying critical prayers about your sisters? And would you pray prayers of hope? So I I still prayed about my sisters. I prayed for my sisters. But instead of listing all their faults and asking God to, to rewire them in all the ways I wanted them to, I just started saying, would you please be at work in them? Would you please send people into their lives to help them draw closer to you? If you need me to be one of those people, God, give me the imagination to figure out how to have that conversation. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it changed how I saw them. It changed how I treated them. I'm telling you, none of you need to keep trying this experiment. I've tried it for 41 years. You cannot successfully criticize someone into being a better person. You can love them there. You can't talk them there through your vast wisdom and knowledge of how else they should be. I've tried it. Let's stop trying it. And let's trust that Jesus says, look, when you see somebody who's struggling, when you see their shortcomings, share with them, not your insight into what you think they should do, share the grace from God's hand that you received because no matter what we feel, you are not better than anybody else. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not worth more than anybody else. I haven't figured this thing out better than anybody else. I stand in need of grace, the same amount of grace that anybody else needs. And thank God that the one God who can judge all of us, instead of judging us, instead of condemning us, saves us. Right? We look, we look into our judge's face and we find a savior there. That's the gospel. Let's live like we believe it. We're going to sing now together, and as we do, our shepherds and their their spouses will be out in our lobby to receive you, to pray with you, to talk with you. If you have anything this morning that you brought as a spiritual burden, uh, whether it's, it's something you're struggling with or if you came this morning with something you want to thank God for, whatever it is that, that you'd be blessed uh, with, with opportunity to talk to a Christian couple, please go to them as together we stand and sing.